today's episode of Virtual Sentiments, I talked to Emerson Birking. Emerson is a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab at the Atlantic Council, and he's the co-author of the book Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. I'm really excited to share today's episode with you because not only is Emerson a really technical expert on disinformation as a really prescient problem for contemporary politics that is very much shaped by unique features of the internet as a 21st century technology. Um, But he's also somebody who's informed by a deep education in the classics, in classical political philosophy, who takes a very deep historical perspective when he thinks about politics today as well. And so he has a really, I think, striking line um, at the end of this conversation that I kind of wanted to introduce this episode with, which is that disinformation is not a problem to be solved. And that is not to say that it's not concerning, that it's not worrisome. Um, In fact, it is. It is something that we should be thinking about. But it is to suggest that it isn't something that we can eliminate, and it isn't something that was introduced to our world with the rise of digital media. But it is something inherent to politics, and not just politics, but might be inherent to democratic life, um, and not just liberal democracy, but something traceable to ancient democracy as well. Um, So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Emerson. Thank you so much for coming on Virtual Sentiments. Uh, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us a bit about your current position and expertise. Thanks, Kristen. It's great to be here. I'm a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council and co-author of book Like War, the Weaponization of Social Media. And I generally track uh, trends in social media manipulation and uh, information conflict. Great. How did you end up working at the intersection of technology and politics? So in college, I studied uh, political science and classical studies. I took a particular interest in U.S. defense policy. And then when I moved to D.C. after school, I knew this was a field I wanted to explore further, in particular to understand um, the decisions around the Iraq war and how the U.S. defense uh, institutions, how they functioned. But kind of simultaneously, I'm from a rural part of Georgia where uh, until you had a driver's license, you really couldn't see anyone. So I grew up on the internet, steeped in uh, the internet culture of the early 2000s, making friends around the world and just following the weird developments that were taking place, sort of pre-social media. But I was always fascinated with online communities. And so there came a point around 2012 and 2013 where I was in D.C. doing my my first internships and junior research positions focused on um, military conflict and uh, terrorism, where it became impossible to ignore that uh, online spaces were increasingly becoming the medium in which uh, these events played out. And here... I had a comparative advantage because 
I was, you know, digital first. I was a millennial at a time when typically only older people were talking about these things. And it seemed clear to me that um, th- these two separate worlds that I followed with great interest were colliding in new and unexpected ways. Um, how did studying the classics influence your research today? So uh, understanding, I, I think, the, <laughs> the, the education of uh your potential audience, Kristen, I want to emphasize, uh, I, I kind of bounced off a lot of classic, of classical philosophy. I was drawn to, uh, you know, really the, the Roman, Roman history component of it. Um, but I, I'd say even with the exposure I had that studying the classics is so helpful because it, it makes you understand that Literally everything you're dealing with has been dealt with before in different forms, and not not just dealt with by uh, you know English philosophers and French philosophers opining a few hundred years ago. It was dealt with people twenty five hundred years ago, and in many ways, their um, articulation of the problems faced by a society can sound just as sophisticated as a lot of discourse today. And I found that that background and just uh, reading classical texts in studying the effects of uh, the classics on the, especially the, the American uh, founders and framers, I found this stuff to be extremely helpful when thinking about the effects of the internet, where every step of the way... Um, you have people saying that this has never never happened before. That this is so new that um, uh, uh, you know it's unleashed a, a flood of disinformation for which we have no answer. And some parts of that prognosis might be right, but a lot of other parts are alarmist. And yeah, it's it's, it's reassuring and helpful to know. And to be able to differentiate the stuff that's truly new, like particular nuances of the technology, um, versus the the deeper political and social problems that have never gone away. That is so fascinating. I really appreciate you sharing with us your experience as well, growing up in a rural environment. And I completely agree that the firsthand experiences we have. Uh, growing up as digital, uh, you know, having so much firsthand digital experience as millennials shaped the way that we we studied our social phenomenon. In that note, I wanted to get into your book on like war. One of my favorite things about this book is that you start with a brief history of how communications technologies shape conflict and vice versa. So a lot of people might be familiar with some of these in the past like the printing press and its effects on the political dynamics of the Protestant Reformation, the role of radio in World War II, and the role of television coverage of the war in Vietnam. I wanted to ask you, what were some of the differences between these, or any of these earlier historical experiences and the way that social media affects politics today? Gosh, it's a a huge question. And, um, yeah, one of the things I enjoyed mo- most about writing the book was an opportunity to dig back into the history of earlier communications revolutions. Because, um, y- you know, it, 
well, humans generally, but I think especially Americans tend to have some historical amnesia. Uh, they're only focused on very recent events. Every time something happens, they think it's the first time that something happened. But you know, of, of course, that wasn't the case. We had uh, plenty of instances of, of dis and misinformation being spread by the early uh, printing press. It actually uh, contributed to the, the horrors of um, uh, the, the Catholic and Protestant wars. Um, many regulatory challenges that say we, we grapple with with the internet today were first faced in the, the context of um, the introduction of the telegraph and, uh, you know, trying to create a unified national telegraph network, trying to figure out how it would operate, who would control it. Uh, was it a problem that one interest controlled the majority of it? You know, we've dealt with many of these discrete problems before in other communications revolutions. Um, but the internet is also fundamentally different. It's different because it is the first uh, communications medium, which enables both mass transmission and individual interaction. So in, in times past, an uh, instrument of mass transmission is a printing press uh, or a television or radio. Individual interaction is enabled by um, the telephone. You know, it bridges distance, but still between two individuals. Um, the internet combines these two functions. So anyone could say, uh, could produce any particular piece of content, and it could reach a virtually, or it could reach an unlimited number of people in the process. Uh, additionally, the internet, and especially modern social media, has introduced an element of speed, which is unprecedented in previous uh, communications mediums. Not only can you transmit a message instantaneously to tens of millions of people, but then they can respond to it. They can produce their own counter content. So it's no longer just, um, uh, think back to that, that classic example of uh, Nazi propagandists uh, speaking to a rapt audience of tens of millions. Instead, it's propagandists producing content, which is then um, uh, taken up by other people recontextualized, and then thrown back into this ever-changing digital milieu. So it's it's so much more dynamic uh, as a consequence, so much more interesting, but also um, so much more dangerous and unpredictable than these previous communications revolutions. Thank you. That's such a great uh, summary of a long history. And you mentioned a really important term that I think we'll be talking a lot about, which is the concept of disinformation. Would you mind giving us a brief definition in your own words of disinformation? Well, sure, sure. I'll start with the um, the dictionary definition that's been drilled into my head, or my, my institution's dictionary definition, which is disinformation is false or misleading information spread with the intention to deceive. And that element of intentionality is very important because that's what separates disinformation from misinformation, which is more generally, um, you know, uh, uh, a falsehood or mistruth, pardon me, it, it is more generally a, a mistruth um, in which someone believes something that is not true. But in disinformation, yeah, there's that element of intentionality. Someone has a message which they know to be false, and they are trying to spread it to achieve a particular end. 
That's great. That's a great way to put it. And I think that distinction between misinformation and disinformation is very important and sometimes lost in contemporary debates. How do the business incentives of social media shape the way that disinformation takes place online and ends up having political consequences? Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. And that gets back to um, really the, the founding of the internet and um, the often sort of cyber utopian promises of the internet's early adopters and early pioneers. Because if you go back to a lot of um, uh, literature out of Silicon Valley in the 80s and 90s, they, they talk yeah, with great optimism about how the internet will break down gatekeepers how it will democratize um, uh, the, the spread of information. But in their telling the result of the, the internet, you know, getting rid of uh, reporters and editors and traditional sort of strictures of legacy media, uh, they think the result of this is going to be a, a kind of noble free market where everyone is producing information and content, but it's the content that's best for society, which will invariably rise to the top and be adopted by the most people. That basically this, this unregulated, just, just beautiful digital market of ideas, which is going to push democracy into the next century. Um, but we know now that's, that's garbage. Uh, what internet attention rewards is content that's most salacious, that generally um, creates a sense of outrage and critically, that content doesn't have to be true to accomplish those things. So that's how we see the, um, the intersection of, of different business incentives and disinformation. Because telling lies that, that provoke and inspire is generally, a, it, for, for content creators, it is a great business strategy. For individuals who run large social media platforms, it's also in their interest to promote that content because that gets... That, that enables them to maximize their advertising dollars. So if we, we look back over the last 20 years at the development of social media companies, up through the mid-2010s, uh, all these companies were optimizing only for engagement. You know, how, how can they build their systems to steer people toward the most um, engaging content to keep them on platforms longer, uh, to create more clicks and draw more eyeballs? And then... But the last uh, uh, six years, uh, especially after the 2016 election, there's been that growing backlash, that reckoning that, that maybe in optimizing for engagement, you were helping pump uh, poison into the body politic, and you were you know, leading people further away from reality. Now, I wanted to get that back to what you were saying about the differences between social media and past technologies. And that is the point you're making about the fact that a propagandist, let's say, that might have a hierarchical position in some way in an organization or has some very specific political objectives, they, using other technologies, could project something out there, but it would be a rather one-way communication, whereas now people can respond and kind of co-produce that narrative. And I wanted to bring this to some of the topics that you discuss in your book, which is the use of bots as well uh, online. And 
whether you think that this constitutes the, the also the problem of appearances, of dialogue, of debate, of support for these narratives that not only help propel them further into virality, but end up shaping the understandings of what's going on of, of many other people who don't necessarily subscribe to these narratives themselves. Yeah. So, so when we talk about these inauthentic actors, um, bots or, or sock puppets, that is either automated programs pretending to be real social media users or real people uh, pretending to be different social media users than they actually are. When we talk about these things, we also get into the territory of the, the foreign interference question and why that's also so pernicious. Because, um, you know, online political discourse is about this, this uh, back and forth of ideas, of um, different ideas being measured by their popularity based on how many people are talking about or supporting them. But th the fact is that in addition to just lying, uh, you can also create the illusion of support. Uh, you can make it seem like way more people are appreciative of an idea or advancing an idea than they actually are. And moreover, um, the the people who are doing this sort of behavior don't have to live in the in the country in which they're they're advancing um, this illusion of uh, a popular movement. And so this is really destructive for. Um, democracies and for democratic policymaking, which often, um, you know, uh, politicians in a democracy have to have their ears attuned to um, popular conversation. Most people now turn to the internet to get a sense of what popular conversation is. But the fact is that that conversation can be inauthentic. It can be polluted by foreign actors who are trying to shift a country's politics. Um, it can be too uh, guided by people who are advancing ideas that are fundamentally destructive to the system, but it doesn't matter because the, the people advancing the ideas don't actually live in that system. So those are yeah, some of the fundamental problems when we talk about um, like foreign interference. And what does it look like in practice? I, I think our li listeners here like would know of numerous examples, but um, I mean, obvious ones are in the 2016 and then again in the 2020 elections, you had um, Russian sock puppet networks in which uh, Russian actors would pretend to be um, Black Lives Matter activists. The same Russians would then switch over to pretending to be like neo-Confederate supporters or uh, uh, strong advocates for police rights, advocates for the se se uh, secession of Texas. Uh, they could jump from one identity to another. And the intention, of course, wasn't to do anything good in the democratic system. It was to um, inject further polarization into it, to pull different um, parts, uh, uh, different networks of the polity uh, in as vastly different directions as possible. Yes, and I wanted to add that that's a really important point you make, that the sock puppets, as you say, were trying to influence and and pretending acting as activists and and people of all sorts of political identities. And so sometimes the common 
way of thinking about something like propaganda or these issues like disinformation is to think that there is an intention of making people believe a certain narrative or a certain kind of way of viewing politics. But it can also and maybe even more often is a attempt to make people more cynical, make people less trusting of what they perceive so that they are just uh, less interested in these democratic ways of interacting with each other with good faith and taking seriously the actual pressing political problems that there are. Um, and like you said, exacerbating the trends of polarization instead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, to that point, um, you know, the, the story of disinformation didn't end with the 2016 election. Uh, I've followed the, the discourse for years afterwards. And one of the most damaging things is the the intrusion of um, all these Russian operatives in the 2016 election. Uh, one of the most lasting consequences is that you're less inclined to believe anything. You're more inclined. People are more inclined today to look at even popular movements with real groundswells of popular support, and they dismiss the whole thing as the work of um, you know Russian bots if it doesn't line up with their particular view of the world. So there's that, that to, to your point that general. Um, fostering of, of uh, uh, disengagement and distrust in political processes. Thank you. That's, that's such a great way to put it. And that's such an important point. I wanted to ask, as, as we're thinking about this, um, obviously some of the most well-known examples are foreign interference, but even the Russian methods that we were discussing that affected the U.S. election were things that were used domestically in Russia before that even happened. So we should already have been thinking about how the same methods could be used domestically in the U.S. So I'd be interested to hear you talk a little bit about that. Um, but I'd also wanted to flag and, and bring into this conversation an argument you made in a piece that you wrote for The Atlantic with Jacob and Shapiro, Americans were worried about the wrong threat, where you both warn against conceptualizing disinformation as a national security problem. So why should we think of disinformation with an international perspective while at the same time re refraining from conceptualizing it in national security terms? So these are... Yeah, you're really getting at the heart of it. Um, I guess I'll start with the, you know, why were why didn't we anticipate this threat? If it was happening, um, you know, domestically in Russian policing of uh, uh, their uh, information environment for years, and I I would really just chalk it up to hubris. Um, it's it's the same reason people, uh, many onlookers, many people who are ostensibly experts in counterterrorism reacted with such shock when um, militants of the Islamic State were using uh, social, Western social media platforms so fluently in 2013 and 2014. Um, actually, the same shock that many people showed in 2021 when the Taliban had a sophisticated social media strategy accomplishing uh, their, their blitzkrieg across Afghanistan. There's just... Uh, even as people talked about the, the liberatory powers of um, these internet technologies and social media, they never really contemplated that peoples in other parts of the world 
had equal access to this new wave of technology, and indeed, in many cases, were better positioned to adopt it. Because it's kind of um, as sort of a foundation of uh, international security theory that actors that are already dominant in a system face higher costs to adopt and integrate new technologies because they, you know, they, they, they have a sunk cost um, and a path dependency on legacy systems. And also they already enjoy dominance in, in the system. But if you're, you know, a new and up and comer, you look for whatever advantage you can to give you an edge. And what that looked like, uh, say, say starting in their early 2010s was that it was, um, it was governments like that of the Russian Federation. It was armed um, uh, terrorist groups like the Islamic State. They were actually best positioned to, to quote, unquote, weaponize social media to um, integrate this stuff into their operations. So, yeah, I, I think it was hubris, our, our failure to anticipate um, the Internet. We, we thought... We only saw the good side of it. We only saw the good side of it because it was also a gravy train for Silicon Valley and for American investors. Uh, but we really failed to anticipate the dark side of it. And then to the other question, what about uh, why or should we conceive of disinformation as a national security threat? The problem with this is that it, there is essentially not a way to separate um, malicious, even uh, malicious foreign disinformation campaigns from more general political discourse in a democracy. My conclusion is that it's it's just not possible to do so. For years now, I've I've um, followed and met with people who uh, they'll have some new startup. They claim that they've they've trained an AI that can detect disinformation. I've talked to a lot of uh, military folks who want to. Who, who say, you know, they're, the enemy's doing disinformation on us. You know, how can we fight back? How can we get them? But it's it's just not a constructive way to think about it because in a dem- the purpose of a democracy is to uh, enable and permit a wide latitude of expressed beliefs with the expectation that, you know, the more people are the more people that are expressing ideas, the more likely that maybe the right idea gets adopted in the end to um, solve a given problem. And that, that sort of just liberal democratic thinking feels very inconsistent with this, this kind of paranoia that anything could be disinformation. And that as a result, we need an overly militarized or illegally prescriptive solution to limit uh, appropriate discourse. These two things, I think, cannot be in harmony. And, I mean, there are a lot more nuances in this debate, um, but in general, that's why uh, the U.S. is focused more on, say, regulation of companies and regulation of algorithms versus regulation of content and speech. Regulation of content and speech has been the focus of um, some democracies, uh, European democracies especially, with mixed results. And regulation of speech has been the singular focus of uh, 
uh, many nations we would not characterize as democracies, like uh, uh, Hungary or Singapore. So on that note, in following your excellent points about just how difficult it is to deal with disinformation, particularly in this more militarized way, without then undermining the freedom of public opinion and expression that we do uh, treasure. I am reminded of, again, in your, your piece, the argument that you make for the importance of local news and how local news in deteriorating has been a part of this puzzle. And you also mentioned the importance of a diverse and inclusive news media. So how would local news in a more diverse news media help mitigate disinformation? So I actually, in the the piece you mentioned that I uh, published with Jacob Shapiro, that was our suggested solution. And one of the, the few things that I think it would not solve the disinformation challenge, but I think it would help mitigate it. Because one of the big problems in the U.S. today is this um, this fundamental erosion of uh, trust in uh, elites, um, but not just elites in um, in in journalists in um, basically an erosion of belief in in established reality in an established shared consensus reality, which enables a democratic government to function in the first place, and. I think one of the big and most obvious drivers of that is that um, the the death of local news in the United States, the fact that uh, together Google and Facebook now control some 80% of all digital advertising revenue in the U.S., that newspapers were left fighting for a smaller and smaller portion of it. By the way, newspapers actually create content. Uh, Facebook and Google just aggregate their content and then monetize it. But they they basically interjected themselves between uh, newspapers and news producers and consumers and and basically took all of that money. And as a result, there's been the the death of local news in the United States, the elimination of some 5,000 newspapers between 2000 and 2020. Um, a vast hollowing out of the remaining jobs, uh, the the frequent phenomenon of vulture uh, capitalist organizations buying established newspapers and then liquidating them for parts. And out of this has arisen something that the people uh, refer to as, as news deserts, where there's essentially no local reporting at all. And what what happens... Or what this means is that for most Americans, most Americans outside of major cities, they no longer have, they no longer know a reporter or a journalist. If they go to a, say, a, a school board meeting, they're less likely to see a journalist there because none of them are working. They're not going to see like journalists at their kids' football games. Instead, their only exposure to journalism is talking heads on CNN and other programs who are talking about national events. But let's say you're in the American heartland. You don't follow political news for 20 hours a day, but you you know you like Trump. 
your only exposure to quote unquote journalists um, outside of like maybe Fox News is seeing people who are just just who are just relentlessly attacking, uh, say, Trump and um, generally advancing a sort of national agenda with which you fundamentally disagree. So your your sense of uh, news production then becomes extremely politicized. And this this whole notion that journalists can be in your community, that you can know people who do this kind of work, you know, it just kind of evaporates. So th- that's a long answer to the question, but I, I think it's that that distru- uh, elimination of trust, um, that sort of unmooring of journalism from communities where people actually live uh, has contributed tremendously to polarization. And um, I, I think even to the appeal of disinformation. Yeah, and I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and zoom out to allow us to talk a little bit about, and I think we're already, we're already talking about the influence of the internet and social media in local politics and affecting the way that national politics and local politics interact in polarizing ways. But I wanted to now think a little bit larger about the internet. And there were two concepts that you discuss in your book, which are the philosophical concept of presentism, which you put rather nicely. The past and future are pinched away, replaced by the incomprehensibly vast now. And separately, there is the concept of the end of forgetting which is what was argued conceptualized by Jeff, uh, law professor Jeffrey Rosen. And this end of forgetting is the way of, of conceptualizing how the internet preserves data. So, um, you know, <laughs> those of us who were on Facebook back in its original days might have posted photos from when we were in high school and college and those are still impacting both the way that we see ourselves and the way that others see us when they find those online. Uh, and in that that way, and in a more maybe more embarrassing and more uh, politically salacious uh, examples as well, where people are being identified with things that they said or did years in the past, and you're not able to forget those aspects of their lives. So at first mm-hmm. glance, this idea that the internet makes it impossible for us to forget to kind of be always. Uh, in the past and tied to our past seems to be in tension with this idea of presentism that there is this incomprehensibly vast now. But how do you think they might fit together? Do you see these two ways of experiencing life uh, and society online as somehow feeding into each other? Uh, gosh, that's a great question. And uh, the answer is is really that the the past is present too online that uh, we we are very susceptible to um the 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 sense of presentism the sense that nothing matters but this this now that we're forever swimming in but at the same time uh like totally bizarrely uh, because everything virtually everything is archived um, and anything can be, you know, looked up somewhere. It means that 
in in any any story we're following, any contemporary grievance issue, um, you can all of a sudden pull in something from that that say someone you don't like said ten or fifteen years ago, and most people who were following uh, this this back and forth probably aren't aware that this this person you know said something reprehensible fifteen years ago. So there's a whole new cycle of outrage, which is going to start when you bring that sort of material in. And as that cycle of outrage happens, you know, more people see it, uh, more people get angry. And so, um, yeah, you, you have this, this bizarre situation where anything anyone has ever done remains potential ammunition for a future political conflict uh, years or decades in the future. A, um, a pretty descriptive, we, we really lack vocabulary for a lot of the ways that the internet changes political culture. But a, a good descriptor here is the, um, the, the term or the concept of the milkshake duck, which is, uh, the milkshake duck is a hypothetical duck who's in a acute uh video where i i think the duck is is sipping on a milkshake or a milkshake falls on him doesn't matter it's made up point is there's a, there's a cool viral video of a milkshake duck but then you know someone digs into it a bit more and discovers that the um the the milkshake dog duck is actually a nazi and then that that just recasts things it's this it's this idea that um forever really hanging over everyone's head is this sort of um like sort of Damocles that that if you've done something even if you haven't done anything uh people are going to find some piece of content that you produced and then reconceptualize it and then there'll be a, a controversy that way and i think as you said it can be um this idea that some people can very successfully use the attention that they get through cancellation, through supposedly bad publicity, and then monetize it essentially uh, and make more money and and identify themselves in that way. And it's actually actually reminds me of something um, that Adam Smith writes about in the theory of moral sentiments, which is the uh, I, where we got our idea for the theme of this podcast. Actually, that book, um, but. He writes about, it's actually a very emotionally expressive and emotionally fascinating book. And he writes about how to deal with enemies, how to deal with those who judge us harshly or incorrectly, or we feel like they don't get us. And he says to kind of make the enemy an object in your own eyes, that you are going to show them how much it doesn't affect you to, uh, and you want to kind of prevent them from taking pleasure in your suffering and seeing you humiliated or, um, you know, letting yourself be demoralized by them. But it, yeah. it is fascinating to me because I think there's sort of different ways of doing that. Right. And I think it's, I think, I think that this is decent advice online. Um, the idea of, you know, you don't feed the trolls, don't give attention to the people who are reading you in bad faith or harassing you. Um, but that can be hard to do too. But then there is the method that you just described for those other people um, who then decide, I guess, to just embrace the way that people characterize them and to 
take that on as a sign of maybe edginess, of contrarianism, of an intellectual refinement, uh, willingness to say what is in- inappropriate or offensive to people, and then take that as an automatic sign of authenticity or of uh, expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and as and as we we have seen that 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 doesn't necessarily. Uh, affect anyone's career and in fact can be um, something that allows them to make more money uh, or be more successful, get, gain a new audience in the process. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to offer? This thing that I study, um, you know, disinformation, especially this information phenomenon, I think it is inaccurate to characterize it as a problem to be solved because I Falsehood and misrepresentation and propaganda campaigns have existed in uh, political discourse since we've had political discourse. Um, And they've always been intrinsic elements of uh, democracies since you had all all the guys, you know, hawking their point of view in the Athenian Agora. What's changed is just the, the technological medium. The fact that lies can have such a greater impact and hurt so many more people uh, so much faster than was previously the case. So I think it's best to to conceptualize of of the disinformation and, and a lot of modern uh, unhappiness and fears of uh, uh, the effects of social media as yeah us reckoning with um, how a new technology has changed something that is an intrinsic and immutable part of uh, politics, that we might be able to come up with more effective ways to regulate those tools uh, or to mitigate their harshest impacts on society, but that we aren't going to solve disinformation itself because disinformation never went away. And where can listeners go to learn more about your work? I'd say uh, just follow me on Twitter uh, at ETBrooking. So well said, Emerson. Thank you so much. Well, thanks very much for having me. There's a lot of points from this conversation with Emerson that I think really build on some conversations we've already had in this series and also will connect to some conversations coming up in future episodes. So as Emerson defined it, and I think this is a really nice uh, dictionary definition of disinformation, but just to remind you, disinformation is false or misleading information spread with the intention to deceive. So this intentionality is what traditionally distinguishes it from misinformation, which is a more general term. And what makes the internet, particularly social media, so unique from earlier forms of communications technologies and maybe um, why we associate it so much with um, a rise in disinformation is that the internet combines a individualized production of content with an expansion of access to the mass transmission of that content with unlimited reach to really what feels like just about anyone um, and and people across the world. Uh, 
as well as a possibility of instantaneous response from that audience so that that content can be recontextualized, as Emerson so nicely put it. And this renders this communications, uh, the communications that we have dynamic and unpredictable. So to connect this a bit to our last episode, the kind of designs that we have in social media, the affordances that are in place on social media platforms shape what kind of content tends to be shared and tends to be amplified. And this is in part shaped by companies' incentives to maximize engagement uh, in the interest of competing for digital advertising revenue, or of course there could be other uh, business models, but those are the most dominant business models online. So while social media has expanded access to audiences, uh, that means that this expansion of access to audiences has also increased um, access for any actor seeking to um, use social media to uh, spread disinformation for their own goals. And something that's important to keep in mind is usually we might have a default to think that, I think of maybe propaganda as something where you're trying to persuade somebody to believe a concrete belief of some kind. But actually, this isn't necessarily the case. It can often be that you're just trying to persuade people to be more cynical um, or, or, or be more be less trusting. So the goal isn't to subscribe to particular beliefs. Rather, the goal might be to sow more generalized cynicism or distrust. And uh, again, I think that the emphasis here throughout our conversation has been not to downplay uh, concerns with disinformation, but to appreciate what a major challenge it is, especially for liberal democracies, and especially in the U.S., which has such a commitment to freedom of speech and is indeed uh, enshrined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, in the First Amendment. And so American policy responses should be grappling with this issue differently than in Europe um, and other countries. And that inherently in a liberal democracy, there's going to be challenges uh, to, to facing up to disinformation. But I also really appreciated that this conversation went beyond, I think, this kind of technological focus. And into the topic of trust, because I think that's really what's at stake here is how do we trust each other and how do we trust the sources of information that we have. And Emerson brought a really unique perspective, not only from his experience as a expert, but as an experience uh, from his experience growing up in rural Georgia. And he was somebody who had some experience working in rural Georgia after college as well in local journalism, and he brought that uh, a bit into the conversation. And he talked about the idea of the decline of local news and local news reporting, and the idea that people no longer having as many local news reporters going to local sports games and and people being able to develop relationships and, and these kind of direct face-to-face experiences with um, people in their communities, and the less that we have of those types of dynamics means the more that we associate the news and associate media and journalism with talking heads on TV, with cable news, whether it's people on our team, so to speak, or people on the other side. And so 
there is a decline in local news and local experiences and people that we we can kind of connect to um, and more of an identity with like national level politics. Um, and so as, as Emerson put it, this kind of increased politicization, also this increased uh, sense of polarization as well. And we'll be talking a little bit more about polarization later on in the season. So I wanted to make sure to talk about that and talk about those concerns that ultimately what we're talking about when we're talking about disinformation isn't just these shady bots online or propaganda, but we're talking about social trust and uh, how do we connect with each other uh, and that interacts with not just what's going on on our screens, but what's going on in our everyday lives as well. Thanks for listening. Till next time.